Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they've developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up-to-date and on track with ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA, OIG, Medicare, Waste, Fraud, and Abuse compliance requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training, all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with EpiCompliance through their Business Associate Center. And most importantly, in our profession, EpiCompliance covers you with billing and coding for waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with EpiCompliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? You might as well do it right with EpiCompliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code Ozark20. That's O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello, you are listening to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara, and I am your host today. Our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. And our goal as always is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, our disclaimer, our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on our over 20 years of experience in the coding and billing industry and our want to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. Guys, we've made it. It's season four. Welcome to season four. Of course, it's October, my favorite month of the year. I love fall. I love all the changes. Getting ready for that next calendar year. I'm getting ready for 2022. But 2022 is upon us when it comes to our ICD-10-CM guidelines. So what are we going to talk about today? Of course, I love my books. I'm a book girl, as everybody knows. So today we're going to talk about getting to know your ICD-10-CM manual. We're also going to bring in some of those updates. I know everyone's on their mind is the no surprise billing. Going to talk a little bit about that, how it affects our practices and our patients. But first of all, I want to talk about how important it is to understand our books. There seems to be this disconnect sometimes with, I'm a coder, I'm a biller. But really, you guys, we need to come together and have a team attitude, right? If you're a coder or a biller, either way, it's really important for you in your job 
as a career too. I mean, a lot of us want to know as much as we can, right? So we can be effective in our jobs. The more you know about your the books, the coding aspects, the guidelines that affect your billing, the better off you're going to be. It's really important that we know what's in the manuals, what all of the appendices are used for, all the symbols, all the colors, they're color coordinated, right? Well, those colors mean something and we're going to talk about that today. If you understand your book, how it's laid out, why those guidelines are there, it can help us when we, of course, think about our claims, right? We want to get paid for those services. We want the the, uh, physicians we work for to get paid for their services. We want to decrease those denials, right? Which makes us uh, understand if we don't understand our guidelines, then we're going to, of course, see more denials if we don't follow them correctly. And the more we understand it, it can help us be more efficient, right? Which is what we want. So today we're going to talk about, of course, look at the introduction to the manual. We're going to talk about the code structure. Every digit in that code uh, means something, of course. All the symbols and the colors, like I mentioned, the appendices, and some of the tips that are right there in your manual to help you understand different sections of the tabular and how you can be, uh, of course, more efficient in using that. So I get a lot of questions about the guidelines because there are so many, right? I get so many students just overwhelmed thinking, I'm never going to remember all of this. And I'm here to tell you it's not required for you to memorize the guidelines. It's not a requirement, but you do have to be able to apply them as you're coding. There is a lot you can remember because of, of course, using it a lot, or you're going to be using certain sections more often than others, depending on what specialty you end up working in. Or maybe you're going to be working in multi-specialty, so you're going to have to be familiar with a lot of them. But like with anything, if you use it and use it and use it and you read it and read it and read it, it's going to become part of your memory. So yes, it's not a requirement to memorize, but you do need to know where to find the information if and when you need it. So what I want to talk about is those official guidelines. Now, it's really important every year when those guidelines come out, as we're doing right now, we're discussing some of the, of course, the book uh, organization, how it's organized, but we're going to talk about some of the guidelines too, just how it's organized and where we can find things. That's really the important part. Now, when it comes to the actual guidelines, we know the organizations that have come together, they make up the cooperating parties of the ICD-10-CM. Of course, these guidelines are approved by them as a, course, cooperating party. So we have the American Hospital Association, the AHA. You will see citations and notes from them in throughout the book. Uh, the American Health Information Management Association, or AHIMA as we know it. They offer some certifications and credentials, and they kind of really focus on that facility coding. They do offer credentials and professional fee coding, but they're really focused on ICD-10 mostly. Um, And then we have CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, And then we also have the National Center for Health Statistics, the NCHS. So we look at that, those organizations, they come together to give us these guidelines, a set of rules that we're going to follow, right? When it comes to looking at the tabular codes, we're going to look at all of those coding conventions, all of the instructions given to us, and these guidelines are going to help us maneuver through those items. That's why it's so important that we understand when they say something in the, in the guidelines or in the tabular, we understand what that word means or what that set of conventions is used for. And everything you're ever going to learn from any seminar you go to, um, any class you take on ICD-10-CM, everything comes from your book. Everything. So yes, I tell people I kind of self-taught myself. I mean, I did, of course, reach out to mentors that helped me along, but I took the time and I read those guidelines from cover to cover. 
I remember my cousin actually has been in healthcare longer than me um, on the uh, facility side. And she, from the get-go, said, if you're going to go into coding, she said, I'm going to give you just the easiest thing to get you started. Read the guidelines. Read the guidelines. Read the guidelines. And so she has never stopped saying that to me. And when I ask a question, she's like, did you read the guidelines? And every time I hear her voice in my head. And now, of course, she works on the IT part of healthcare, uh, behind the scenes in the software department. But I still, I still go out, reach out to her for questions. And she's like, okay, did you go here? Did you go here? Did you go to CMS? Did you read the internet only manual? Did you do this? So she always tells me to think outside the box a little bit. And I've always thought about that, you know, like, you know, it comes to, yeah, you have your books, but you have your part of these cooperating parties that come up with the guidelines. They have information on their website that are going to help you. So don't just use your books. Go to those authorities, those authorities like AHIMA, CMS, all of these, the American Hospital Association Coding Clinic. All of those things are there to help us further understand and dig deeper into those guidelines. So the first thing we want to talk about is, of course, the sections of the guidelines. That's where we start. And, of course, you go into the book, you open up flip pages. It's the first thing you're going to see, right, is those guidelines. You have your section one, right? Now, section one has the structure of the codes, the conventions, those basic things that don't change, right, until we get to our chapter-specific guidelines, right? Section two is for our facility coders, our non-outpatient setting coders that have to deal with those principal diagnosis, right? And then we have section three is additional guidelines for reporting those services. Section four is for outpatient coding and reporting. So sections one and sections four are typically what our professional fee coders deal with. And sections two and three are for you facility coders for the most part, right? Although when it comes to section one, all coders have to follow section one. Whether you're inpatient or outpatient, you need to follow the coding conventions and, of course, those chapter-specific guidelines. We know that when there's a chapter-specific guideline, it may slightly alter, right, something that we know in the coding conventions where it says, you know, this is going to be the principal diagnosis in this instance. But, of course, when it comes to uh, the chapter-specific guidelines, they may say, well, in this instance, if the patient has this and this, and this is true, then do this. So you do have to occasionally, like I said, you're not going to remember all of these things. It's almost impossible to remember every single guideline. But the more you use it, the more you're going to remember that. So if you're coding for infectious disease, there's a lot of things in there. We've got HIV, we've got sepsis, we've got, of course, the COVID guidelines, and we have all these things to remember. And so we're going to maybe remember some of them because we use them all the time. Other little guidelines in there that may affect a certain situation, we may not automatically have it called to mind. So we have to go back and do that. But one thing I always tell my students is, you know, think about where you are. When you're on the test and you're maybe taking a question and you're like, oh, goodness, I don't remember how to do this. And so you look at the very top of your page. It says you're in chapter one of ICD-10-CM. You are in infectious disease, right? So you flip back to that section of the guidelines and you look for something surrounding the, that code range. Or you're, uh, of course, coding in your e-codes, your diabetes codes, for instance, in Decrin. And you look at the very top. It says chapter four. And you remember there is a lot in the guidelines about diabetes coding and the guidelines. And what do you do for default? And what do you do for this? And what if the patient's pregnant? What do I do? And so you go to those sections. You follow that roadmap. Like I always say, if you get off on the wrong street or you don't take that detour, you're going to end up in the boonies. And that's what I always tell my students. Follow your roadmap and follow those signs. Follow those detours so you end up at the right destination. 
So now let's go in and let's talk about some of those symbols. I love talking about my symbols. Now we all remember, as long as I can remember, we've always had that additional character required little checkbox, right? So when we're looking at our index, we're looking for a code. We know, coding 101, we never code from our index. It's a starting point. It helps us find the most uh, efficient and quickest way to get to the tabular in the section that's going to get us where we need to go. We're not done though, right? We have to go to the tabular to finish our code. But once you get to the tabular, you're going to see things like a number four, maybe a number five, a six or a seven next to that code set. And it's going to remind you, okay, this symbol is telling me that I have to have an additional character to get to four characters, or I have to have seven characters in this case. So I've got to get to seven somehow. So I've got to understand that symbol. The X symbol, that is our extension, right? Our filler, as so to speak. It fills the gaps um, in between so we can get to that seventh character. Remember, the seventh character in our book is always going to be the same. There's going to be a box there, right, that tells us, in this box, you're going to find the appropriate seventh character. And so you apply that, and that box applies to a certain set of range of codes, right? So you know, if I'm in this range of codes, I have to use this box for my seventh character. But what if I only have four or five digits when I get there? I'm like, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, that's what our X placeholder is for. It gives us that placeholder so we can have a full seven digits that's required by that code set. And of course, those of course additional characters, um, those placeholders allow for future expansion of codes, but we have to report in those instances seven characters. Now, some of us may not have ever seen this in our book, but there are a lot more symbols that are just there. And we're like, okay, it doesn't apply to me. I don't need to know what that means. But have you noticed the Medicare code edit symbols and colors? Do you know what those are for? You have your N for newborn, your P for pediatric, your M for maternity, and your A for adult. So the Medicare uh, code edits, um, these editors will detect any inconsistencies Maybe if you report a code, the patient's this age, you're like, okay, that's not going to be right. <laughs> and then maybe a five-year-old patient with a benign prosthetic hypertrophy or a 78-year-old patient coded with a delivery. That's an example in your ICD-10 manual. What's wrong with that? Well, how can, you know, yeah, I mean, this is possible, but um, a 70-year-old, eight-year-old patient is typically not going to deliver a baby in most instances. It's not impossible, right? But that's going to trigger something. Are you sure this is the case. Um, and why would a five-year-old patient have benign prostatic hypertrophy? We don't know, right? <laughs> so there's an inconsistency there, potential error that they want to flag for. So those are symbols that are going to remind you, okay, this is a pediatric patient code specifically, right? This, this would be inconclusive information. Um, so we want to make sure we double check on that, right? So for uh, maternity, it says age ranges 12 to 55 years, gives you examples of diabetes and pregnancy, antepartum pulmonary complications. So those are some examples where you might see that uh, symbol, right? Or in an adult, ages 18 to 124 years of age, senile delirium, mature cataract, that would be an example of that. And then for newborns, age zero, <laughs> right? Um, up until I think it's what 24 months is considered a newborn, right? And so when you look at those, um, these are intended for newborns or neonatal. So fetal distress, perinatal jaundice, those are examples of that. And then of course, pediatric zero to 17 years of age. So at some point after that 24 months, right, they're no longer considered a newborn. 
they've moved into that pediatric stage. So there might be other types of codes you might use for that section of codes. Um, anyone 18 and over is going to be, of course, um, an adult. So between that range, you might see maybe some routine uh, child health exams or things that are just routine for those pediatric patients, right? And there's also codes, you know, that detect for male or female conditions. You have the male or female sex symbols. And these edits, of course, were, were put in there, the Medicare code edits, right, for inconsistencies with patient sexes. And so we understand that a male patient uh, wouldn't have cervical cancer, right, from the cervix, the female uh, structure. And a female patient wouldn't have a prostatectomy, right? Things that a female wouldn't have technically, right, from birth, those organs aren't there. So in both instances, they're going to see that there's going to be an inconsistency, trigger an edit, right? Are you sure this is the case? Other symbols we're going to see, of course, we understand the manifestation etiology codes. Um, there are things like that. So um, you're going to see code descriptors that are highlighted with a light blue color. These are manifestation codes, meaning they're an underlying disease. There is something that's manifested because of an underlying disease. Not the disease itself, and it shouldn't be used as a primary diagnosis because something else caused it, right? They're manifesting something, but what caused that disease or that problem, right? And I get questions all the time about what is the difference between other specified and unspecified? Well, our books do not leave us to wonder. They specifically tell us that when we see that gray colored other specified, what that means is that the code set doesn't have a specific code that describes the condition that we're looking for. Um, it's not an unspecified code because it clearly specifies in our documentation what it is, um, but we don't have a code for it yet, right? So we have other specified because it is specified in our documentation. Unspecified in the yellow, right? These are, of course, um, tell us that neither the diagnostic statement or the documentation provides enough information to assign a more specific code. So we need to understand those differences. Um, now, there are a lot of definitions, things in the book that are helpful to highlight, especially if, you look, if you're coding for certain areas. So when you're going through your book and you see something that you know, okay, I need to remember this for later. For instance, there are definitions about terminology throughout the book. Um, there's actually a little snippets right above a code set sometimes that we just skip right over sometimes. We're so concerned about getting to that code, right? That we forget to read under that, of course, main heading, that main three-digit character code, their specific instructions. So at the beginning of the maternity section, for instance, OB, chapter 15, we see definitions and we see specific information that's going to help us throughout that code set. So the trimesters, they specifically tell us for first, second, and third trimester, the beginning of that section, how many weeks that is. And we're going to need to know that to know which code to use um, when that code requires us to code the trimester. The symbol with the little, um, the circle, the, the black circle, right, new code, that means it's a new code for that current year. So we can identify that as a new code this year. Maybe I should review that, review all my instructions around it to see if it's something that I need to, of course, change my understanding on. Um, the little asterisk, new text. This, of course, appears before the text if there's something added to the text. Sometimes they revise wording or they add some words that further clarify that uh, code set that we didn't, of course, understand previously. Uh, the little triangle um, pointing up, right? That, of course, revised. So the code was revised, um, and you're going to see that. And then you have the facing triangles, revised text. 
that's when the text has been revised. And this appears before and after the text um, of that current year. Now for sequencing, there are a lot of indicators and a lot of things having to do with sequencing, admission, complications, and comorbidities. And a lot of this will, of course, affect your facility coders. Um, so if you're coding for ICD-10 as a facility coder, you're going to want to pay attention to things like the complication of comorbidities, the CCs, the major complications or comorbidities uh, for the MCCs. So if you're coding, you have to, of course evaluate that a full DRG, you have to report those comorbidities and you need to, of course, put that on there. And of course, that's based on CMS data, of course. Um, there are symbols for hospital acquired conditions based on CMS data. And so these are things that they want you to report. Um, it may be something that you're required to report um, if you work in that facility that requires you to report those things. If you're a risk adjustment coder, you're concerned with those HCC diagnosis, right? There are those hierarchical coding conditions. Um, or there's ones that are labeled prescription HCC, right? And those are things that are helpful. Now, the symbol I love, because I love my Z codes, I think they're way underused. They're not used nearly enough. And so you have that Z-1. It's a really great symbol, right? It's tells you Z code as first listed diagnosis and tells you that only certain, we know only certain ICD-10 uh, Z codes um, can be listed as primary or in the first spot, right? And you might, of course, remember previous years they had just that, what is it, the PDX uh, symbol, that PDX symbol saying it was primary diagnosis, but we have this other symbol, uh, PDX, um, and then it has the little uh, red circle with a line through it. And we want to understand that because um, in the actual symbols, it says it's unacceptable principal diagnosis based on Medicare code edits. But then we have our Z-1, which is, of course, this is only going to be a first listed diagnosis um, and or that needs to be first listed. So there's a difference between the principal diagnosis and a first listed diagnosis because for inpatient coders, we know that we have to have follow the principal diagnosis guidelines. And so it tells us maybe this code wouldn't be appropriate to use as a principal diagnosis. But of course, if we're coding for outpatient services, it would be appropriate. And this Z code is used, of course, as first listed in this instance. So understanding what, of course, code set or what facility you're coding for. Are you coding facility inpatient guidelines or are you following the outpatient professional fee guidelines? Those are things to keep in mind. Now, one thing that we want to be aware of, too, is that there are citations to the American Hospital Association's Clothing Clinic for ICD-10-CM, and that's that quarterly newsletter that's put out by them, and so it's a really great resource. It's considered an authority for coding guidance for ICD-10-CM and ICD-10-PCS, so we want to make sure that we, of course, review that um, and be aware of the guidance that's listed there. Uh, there are instructional notes that we see every year, right, for our excludes one or excludes two, includes, right? So we have to, of course, pay attention to those. These these are not negotiable. If we miss reading those and they're listed there, we could code inappropriately. Um, and of course, it could result in the denial of a claim. So not coded here. That's excludes one. So it's in black. It alerts you never to assign codes under the excludes one along with the code that you're reporting because they would never, of course, um, be coded together, right? Um, and then, of course, the excludes two not included here. So this is that light gray highlight that alerts you um, that you're most likely not going to assign those codes together that you're referencing 
but they could exist at some situations, but it's not, of course, typical, right? The includes note is so important because it gives you some of those other examples um, underneath that code set that lets you know you're, you've chosen the right code because it gives you other conditions that maybe you're looking for one of those conditions. Maybe the index led you there, um, but that's not the title of the code. But underneath those includes notes, it gives you confirmation that the code or the description, the disease you're looking for is found um, in that code set or that particular code, right? And of course, there are additional notes that are, of course, uh, listed throughout the tabular section for additional information for us. The code first alert is really important. Uh, these are listed throughout. It tells you, of course, that you need to assign something first before you code what you're about to code. There's the use additional code. This, of course, we'll see mostly with those etiology codes, manifestation codes. So your code first will be sometimes listed there um, if you have to, of course, code uh, that etiology um, or manifestation code. A manifestation code is, of course, in addition to the principal or primary etiology diagnosis. So something caused that manifestation to occur, and so they tell you the order, whether it's code first or use additional. you got to follow those instructions. And then code also is another option, right? You can code also these codes, but remember, these are optional because you have to have documentation to support it, don't you? It depends on this, the encounter and what's, of course, happening. That's how we know uh, when it's appropriate to use them. And are you a visual learner like me? I love my diagrams. I love my illustrations um, in my ICD-10 book. It helps me kind of find my way to make sure I'm in the right area of the body, of course. It's important to do that uh, when you're coding for diagnoses uh, to make sure you understand this, the structures um, of the area you're about to code. So really, really important stuff. Now, there are, of course, nice little tables in our book. We have the table of drugs and chemicals. Uh, the, the index for external causes, and the table of neoplasms. Again, these are not the tabular. These are indexes. These are tables and indexes that help us kind of the starting point, figure out where we need to go, what codes that we should start with, and then we're going to go there in the tabular. We're going to follow our coding conventions, follow our chapter-specific guidelines for those sections, and then continue on uh, with our code selection in the tabular. And I love appendices. Anytime I look at a book, I always look to see the appendices. You know, there might be some um, appendices that might be different or located in different places, right? Um, different things in different publishers. But um, I'm using the AAPC um, expert, uh, ICD-10CM. And so I, of course, am speaking today from that manual. So that's what I wanted to highlight. I am uh, talking about that manual that I'm looking at. So in their appendix A, I see Z codes for long-term use of drugs. That's a really important index. Uh, a lot of times we miss opportunities to really uh, clarify information found in the charts. Uh, it's really important for some conditions that if a patient has a condition or they're taking a certain medication, they want to know how long have they been on that. If they've been on it for long-term use, they, we need to report that. And it's a nice little reference because sometimes we don't know drugs like maybe a physician will. So we see the drug that's documented. They say they've been on it for so such time, right? So we go there and we look for that drug name. And then we find the exact Z code that it tells us to go to, right? We'll take that code, just go ahead and flip over to that code in the tabular, that Z code, and just confirm that that kind of matches up with what you're looking at. But yeah, it's a great reference to kind of get you there um, for that purpose. And it's really important to uh, use that, that appendix when needed. 
And of course, the symbols for seven character codes. Uh, there is an Appendix B in the AAPC manual for that. And I think it's great. You know, it's important for us to understand um, the different, um, you know, things we need to understand for the symbols for the seven character codes. And then um, the Appendix C, which is the summary of all the changes for that current year. So if you want to know what is new, what's happening, then check that appendix out, Appendix C. It's a great, great reference. Uh, there are a lot of changes, um, of course, to the complication codes and poisonings. There were some there as well. Um, there were a lot of poisoning codes, actually. There were some complications. There were some external cause codes that were added. We definitely remember how many new cough codes we had, right? We had six new cough codes. Crazy different ways we can describe a cough, but we know it's needed, especially with current situation that's facing us with the pandemic. So there are a lot of uh, manifestations, a lot of symptoms that occur from the COVID-19. So imp- they, they wanted to allow for expansion of different documentation, uh, different um, aspects of those symptoms. There were some several additions to uh, the K codes for GI, and we know there aren't any chapter-specific guidelines currently for um, the K codes for digestive system. So we're left with, of course, following the tabular instructions in order to code those appropriately and any references that are given to us by coding clinic um, that can help us understand these diseases a little bit better. So read through those, look at those new codes and see if they apply to your situation. If you have to code them, make sure to always read those notes, inclusion notes, excludes one, excludes two. Uh, Follow our roadmap. Make sure we're understanding things appropriately uh, so we can code effectively and, of course, enhance our claim submission, our payments, uh, and reduce those denials by properly, of course, applying the guidelines. Now, as promised, I said I would mention a little bit about the no surprise rule. And of course, on September 30th, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the Labor and the Treasury Department, along with the Office of Personnel Management, issued a second interim final rule. Um, And of course, this, of course, affects this, of course, with out-of-network providers and what the patient can expect to pay and all of these things that affect the patient. And so it's Yes, it's nice for the patient, right? I'm a patient sometimes, so I can appreciate that point of view. I also can see it from the provider's point of view, having, of course, owning a billing company and being that middleman between the insurance company and the provider and helping them understand um, all the aspects of what happens if I'm an out-of-network provider. What am I facing with here? And there's times where maybe a provider decides, I'm going to go start my own clinic, and they want to get things up and running, but they're not familiar, maybe, or they don't realize how much is involved in the credentialing process and, and becoming in-network with a, an insurance provider. And so it can cause a lot of issues back and forth, you know, are we going to take this insurance? Are we going to sign a contract with this insurance company? What are the requirements that I have to, of course, fill to be credentialed with this insurance provider? And then the patient decides, I want this doctor, but doesn't realize maybe that they're not in network with their insurance. So many patients, unfortunately... Um, they get these surprise bills because they want to see a certain physician that's recommended to them, or maybe it's an emergency situation. I remember when my grandfather had to have emergency heart surgery, and um, he had to go to a, a out-of-state uh, facility to have this specific physician that he needed uh, to do this procedure. But, of course, he had an HMO, and it was very difficult to get uh, that covered, so we had to, of course move heaven and earth to get things moved around and get things done for him. But 
it was such a, a mess. And as on the patient, the family side, we, we worry about our family. You know, it's important for them to get the health they need, but then the after effects, what's the reimbursement going to be? What's, what's my out-of-pocket cost going to be? And so it is important for patients to know. Uh, I, as a patient, would like to know how much it's going to cost me to have a procedure or my husband or my family, right? So we can see it as a patient. We understand But when we're educating our physicians or we're talking to them and letting them know how this is going to affect their bottom line, they're concerned about that. So we definitely want to be aware of some of the ins and outs of this rule and how it's going to affect things. So I'm going to put the the actual uh, letter or the the newsroom facts uh, from CMS in my show notes. I think it's really important that you don't just listen to me what I'm saying. You know, I'm referencing this document as I talk and I'm giving you some of the highlights, right? And I want you to understand that it is your responsibility as a medical biller, a coder, a office manager, director of a facility, a physician, whoever's listening to me today, it's your responsibility to get to know this information because it does affect everyone involved in the business of healthcare. Now, what is as a surprise medical bill? They tell us that in this information. Um, usually when you have... Um, a policy, a patient has a policy, you can go and you can see, okay, who is in network with my insurance? Your insurance company has a list of those providers on their website. What I'm going to see, maybe a orthopedic physician or a chiropractor or something like that. I always look on my um, website for my insurance to see, okay, who is in network? Because I want to pay, I don't want to pay more than I have to, right? And that's acceptable. So you have to look at that. Now, these facilities, these providers, these these physicians, they agree to accept a specific payment for their services based on the contract that they're under with that insurance. But, of course, in emergency situations, a patient might go um, to the emergency room and not, you know, they're, they're maybe visiting out of town and they have to go to the emergency room. It happens. And they have to go see this physician who is not in network with their with their insurance or this facility isn't. And they get these surprise bills like, oh, my goodness, I have to pay the difference between what my insurance paid and what the the rest of it would was paid or would have been paid if I was in network <laughs> with that insurance or, or that and uh, with that facility. Right. Or that physician. So. It's uh, something to think about. You know, we think about what is actually happening behind the scenes when I see an out-of-network provider at this point in time. So that is what happens. And so these are situations that you sometimes can't avoid. And so this rule, this thing that is going to go into effect January 1st, 2022, we're concerned about it. So now is the time to understand that rule, understand how it will affect the bottom line with our physicians um, and our practices, um, and even as a patient, how it's going to affect us as a patient. So as we see in the information, it does mention that this rule will help to limit the cost that as a patient you have to cover when you get a surprise bill. So how much you have to pay will be capped, and the capped rate is determined by referring to maybe a state payment agreement, state law, or the qualifying payment amount. It's generally the average in-network rate for the same or similar services um, for the health plan, and that's how it's described in this information from CMS. So if there's anything that you don't understand when you read this information, when you go to their fact sheet and you read all this information, if you don't understand what it means, uh, please reach out to me or another consultant that is, uh, we've, we're all out there talking about this right now. So 
If there's any information you don't understand, please reach out and help. We can maybe clarify some of the wording for you if you're unfamiliar with some of the terms. And that's why I come out and I talk about this because I always like to teach or explain things in a way that is familiar to the general public because so many of us, we go into healthcare, we go into the business of healthcare. There's a lot of legal terms and things that we have to kind of understand those words. What do they mean? And, you know, how am I going to get that from the paper into my head? And how am I going to apply that? When I first started learning coding and billing, there were a lot of terms that just went over my head. So I had to break those words up. As you know, I love words and the meaning of words and how what they mean. So when you don't understand what a word means, it makes it hard to understand how to apply that instruction. So you need to know what it means. If you have a question, please, please let me know. Now, I love this part, very clear. If you're a patient and you're listening right now, you're not, of course, a physician or you don't work uh, for um, in billion or coding and you're just listening to my podcast today. As the consumer, you aren't involved in this process and your cost sharing is limited to the in-network cost you would need to pay for the service. The additional cost, though, for that out-of-network portion beyond what your interest is going to pay for you, right? That is going to be negotiated between your health plan and the provider or facility. So think about that. You're not involved in this process. You're not going to have to worry according to this information. That's what it, that's the way I interpret it, mind you. I'm interpreting this that way. That what I'm reading on this fact sheet from CMS, that's how I'm interpreting it. Like I said, disclaimer, do not interpret what I'm saying as legal or professional advice. I am interpreting the way I see it, so what I'm reading, and I encourage you as my listener to do the same. If they deny or partially pay a claim, um, you have, of course, can appeal the decision through a separate process, and that, that's available to you. Um, and the nice thing, you know, I work for a facility, um, for a clinic where we do the billing, and our staff is the one that negotiates with the patient and says, okay, um, this is what we expect your health costs to be for this procedure, and this is what we expect at this point in time. We've looked up your coinsurance, your deductible. We've looked up the fee from the insurance, what they ex- they say is they're allowable. They're going to pay for it, and this is what we expect with this procedure and this procedure. And I've trained my staff, you know, we don't want to overcharge the patient. We want to try to be as close as possible to that fee that we expect they're going to have to pay. On our side of things, we're professional side. So we don't know all the ins and outs at the facility side. So we always say, this is the phone number, call this number for the facility, and, and they can give you the estimate of what it's going to cost you on that side, anesthesia expectations and such. We're going to give you the professional side, the physician service for doing the procedure, and this is what we expect. We're going to look at the primary procedure, any secondary codes that we may have to use. We look at the payer policy. We look at, okay, this is the primary procedure expected to pay 100% of this. Additional procedures might be paid at 50%, so we account for that when we give them their fee. We don't charge them 100% of each code. That's the way we do it. You know, Other clinics may do it differently. You may charge them based on your fee. Uh, in your fee schedule. We don't do it that way. I try to keep it as close as possible to the allowable from the insurance. Um, so I can, you know, because I hate to refund, but I don't want to have to try to collect either. So I get as close as I can to the allowable charge that I expect the uh, facility or the insurance, excuse me, to pay for. And so the good faith estimate that they're talking about here is useful for people because they want to know that good faith estimate 
You know, what What do I expect to pay? They have to budget. I'm a patient. I have to budget when I need surgery. I need to know. And obviously, if I need it, I need it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I need, I want to know what I'm out on this. Um, and so it gives you those, um, those guidelines there that they've given you, right? The a time frame they expect you to get back to the patient, give them that good faith estimate. Um, try to, of course, give them as much information as you can, um, you know, itemize that if you can on different things so they can see clearly, okay, this is what we expect to be done during that procedure. And then, of course, uh, we want to understand for dispute purposes, Beginning January 1st, 2022, under the dispute process, you can dispute resolutions between you and the provider if the actual bill charges for that course service is at least $400 more than the good faith estimate you were given. And you have 120 calendar days to get the bill to begin that process from the day you get the bill to do that. So that's something you want to keep in mind as a patient. So keep in mind, there's a lot of information um, on this fact sheet that I can't go into today due to time. I mean, if we were to read word for word every single aspect of this document, it would take all day, right? And we we could spend all day talking about this um, information and how it affects things. But be aware as a consumer, you know, I want my provider to be able to help as many people as possible. But the end of the day, is it really serving everyone involved if we can't offer that patient the proper care and make them pay more than they have to. You know, it's it's something to think about if you're a provider. I know you want to, your, your bottom dollar, right? You want to get, um, you need to, of course, uh, think of your, your bottom line with finances. But the patient, of course, is also someone that um, needs to be able to afford the procedure. So work on your credentialing, work on getting in network if that is something you want to do, if you want to, of course, provide service through that insurance company. Uh, But understand what's going to happen if you see a patient who is out of network. And a lot of this comes with organization too. I find so many times um, when front office staff isn't trained appropriately, there's a lot of gaps that can, can exist with this because a patient calls and says, I want to schedule an appointment. There's an opening. Okay, sure. What's your insurance? They type it in, put it in the system, but they don't check to see if the patient is in network or if the physician is in network. They don't know sometimes that information. So is there some disconnect between the people in your office or your facility that are doing the credentialing? Is your software up to date? Does your software, does it, uh, of course, alert that person doing registration that we are not, this provider is not in network with this uh, insurance? that's going to flag them. Um, Are you doing, when you do uh, eligibility checks, are you doing those frequently and well in advance of the appointment so that you can catch these things? So you have enough time to say, hey, we did some checking. We noticed that your insurance company is not in network or your policy, you're not in network with our physician or on this facility. Uh, So this is what your repercussions could be. If they still want to see that physician and they are determined, I want to see that doctor, then make sure they understand the repercussions and the what could happen and make sure they're informed. We want to be honest and upfront with our patients so they trust us. That's that's really the key here. If they could trust us to do their care, they understand we're not trying to take advantage of them, not trying to, uh, you know, be fraudulent here just to get their their business. It's about 
patient care and getting paid for what we're actually doing. That is what we're here for in the business of healthcare, to help providers see that connection between this is what we're doing and this is what I'm going to get paid. Make sure everybody is on board. Everybody understands the ins and outs of what is going to happen um, at the end of the day. So that's my little spiel on the surprise billing, and there's a lot more to be heard, to be seen, to experience, right, once we fully get into 2022, all of these updates, but keep up to date, keep learning. Um, If you're not on CMS's, the um, alerts, get an alerts in your email, you're missing out because there's a lot of information that you could know ahead of time that can, of course, help your providers to be up to date. When you get those alerts and it affects you, then, of course, bring it to the attention of whoever needs to know so they can make sure the providers know and that they can be um, educated so they know ahead of time. So they don't have surprises either. We want our physicians, our facilities to be well informed of what is happening um, to be efficient um, in the process of collecting, the process of billing, and making sure that uh, there are no surprises. So thank you for listening today. We are so grateful for all of our, of course, patrons that have joined our patron squad. If you're still interested in becoming a patron squad member and you want to earn CEUs for listening to our podcast, head over to www.patreon.com slash life as a coder. We have several options. We have three tiers. Our first tier is for your basic members, only a dollar a month, and that gives you one CEU a month. That, of course, one of our basic episodes that we, of course, air every month, and you'll find that uh, access to that, and you'll find that identified on our patron website. And then, of course, if you're an all-access or a VIP member, you're going to get our bonus episode with one CEU every month, and that's for $5 a month, so that's two CEUs a month. For our VIP members, you get the extra mile, you get $10 a month, you get three CEUs because we're going to throw in one webinar for free, um, I guess, including your membership, not free. It's going to be included in the $10 membership, and that is going to give you three CEUs a month. We're going to give you a webinar from our our website, and that's going to give you, um, of course, a lot more options. And again, it's all free education as far as everyone is concerned. We don't charge you to listen to our podcast on our podcast website. When it comes to getting CEUs, that's the only time you're going to be charged, right? Because you're, of course, purchasing a service to, of course, keep up your education that's required by your license uh, for either um, AAPC uh, or a HEMA uh, or any organization that accepts AAPC CEUs. So again, we enjoy offering this education. We want to keep offering it. And of course, we love, love virtual events. And we know we've had so many requests for more virtual events since 2020 began and it became necessary for us to provide these. So I encourage you to jump over to our Eventbrite page and the website link is in the show notes. This will give your up to up upcoming events and we're going to have some specialty events for orthopedics, for OBGYN, pediatrics, cardiovascular and oncology just name a few. So keep up to date, get out there and and learn what we're offering. Uh, Sometimes we offer free events. Sometimes, of course, they're not free, but we all have to, of course, realize the importance of education. Ongoing education is vital in our industry. So never stop learning, never stop growing. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow.
I want to do a huge shout out to our new September members of our patron squad. I want to thank Danielle, Ramel, and Alicia for joining the patron squad. So thank you for joining us and supporting us. We hope you enjoy your journey here with us uh, as a member of the patron squad at Life as a Coder. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Monday for a new episode. We'll catch you then. Project Resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Be sure to reference this podcast when you place your order.